One announcement uh, that needs to be made is that the Sunday School Christmas program this afternoon uh, at 4 o'clock will be held in the CE building. That'll be in the CE building at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And uh, we hope that uh, you will join us there at that time. Let me say an additional word about this study Bible, which is being sold on behalf of the college. Actually, the cost of printing this Bible and binding it is about $14.80. The donor, the benefactor, the patron, who has made all of this possible, is selling these Bibles to the college so that they will be able in turn to sell them uh, to other people and the profit will go to the college itself. And uh, so I wanted to call it uh, to your attention. The, uh, it's an excellent study Bible. It has hundreds of pages of helps in it. And has, I know uh, Robert L. Turner, his name or initials appear no place in this Bible. He and a man whose name you all know, Maxie Jarman, who died just a few weeks ago with a heart attack. I know both of these men. Maxie and Bob are both very earnest Christians. Maxie founded what is called the Christian Bible Society. It was an effort to encourage people to read the Bible. One of the greatest weaknesses that I see in the church is the abysmal ignorance of people who are elders and deacons and members of the church who never read the Bible consistently nor carefully study it. What would you do if someone came up to you on the street and said, are you a Christian? And you said, yes, I'm a Christian. And they said, can you tell me where in the Bible is uh, the Sermon on the Mount? Would you be able to tell them? If they said there's a lot of talk in Kentucky about the Ten Commandments and the Supreme Court's decision, where do you find the Ten Commandments? Could you tell them? If they said to you, I've got to go to the hospital and I'm going to see someone who's dying, is there anything in the Bible that would be especially appropriate for me to read? I had a young medical student call me from a hospital one night and ask me what passage he could go back and sit down by a black man who was dying. And he said, all the conference of the doctors have been held and there's nothing more that can be done. He is still conscious and can understand me. What should I read to him? What would you do? We are supposed to be believers. Everything in the Presbyterian Church is supposed to be based upon the Bible as its final authority. And so we need uh, to read the Bible. This is a, made as a study Bible. Mr. Turner, who put this, uh, who really put the money into the publication of this book, this particular edition of the Bible, literally has read himself almost blind in preparing and in having other scholars put together the scholarly parts of it. His story in itself is an inspiration of stewardship, and today we'll talk about stewardship. He came home as a high school boy, as a sophomore, coming in one afternoon from high school to find that his mother and father were going to be divorced. His mother said, it's hard times, and I can't feed the family. You're going to have to quit high school and go to work. 
He went out to look for a job in Wheeling, West Virginia. He went into an automobile parts store, and a man by the name of Carlisle Frazier hired this little 15-year-old boy. He made $5 a week sweeping out the parts store. He was sharp. He could put up the parts in the right place, and he began to think in such a way that he caught the attention of the owner of the store. They began to realize that when a car broke down, that people would sometimes have to wait three or four days or maybe three or four weeks to get it fixed because parts would have to be ordered from a long distance. Bob had used the library, and he reasoned that one ought to be able to uh, file on cards like you put in a library books, and from that, uh, look through it and find a place where you could call by long-distance telephone and order a part. And that these parts, by being warehoused in strategic places, could be sent by bus quickly, and that mechanics could receive the parts, and in return, the car could be fixed more quickly. That organization was called Genuine Parts. It is now called NAPA. It is known all over the 50 United States. Mr. Turner became, Carlisle Frazier was the first president and the first chairman of the board. Mr. Turner was the second president and the second chairman of the board. He retired at 46. He was worth at that time, I suppose, about $100 million. He has been, he, he had a daughter who went to a camp, a granddaughter who went to a campus crusade for Christ meeting. She had been a lot of difficulty to the family and she became soundly converted. He couldn't believe it, but he knew that a great change had taken place. She came back and asked her grandfather if he would go to one of the crusade for Christ meetings. All he could remember was the great change that had taken place and while he gave money generously to many causes, this fascinated him and so he went. Someone shared with him the four spiritual laws and to make a long story short, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Then his granddaughter asked him to go to a meeting where other people were supposed to go out and knock on doors and share the four spiritual laws. Now here's this corporation tycoon being told by a group of people with a blackboard to go knock on the door of apartments and speak to whoever comes to the door about faith in Jesus Christ. Well now his typical mental attitude would be, well I can hire people to do that for me. But they said, no, that won't do. You're supposed to belong to Jesus Christ. You're supposed to witness for him. He swallowed his pride, and he went out and knocked on doors, and he shared the four spiritual laws, and he led people to faith in Jesus Christ. I have known him since 1966. I met him in Austria. I have seen him grow in the Christian faith. He became very much interested in people studying the Bible, and so he went to tremendous expense to hire scholars uh, to put together a large print red-letter edition 
with a, a mini study helps in the back of it. Uh, these, uh, uh, he subsidizes at tremendous extra expense. I suppose he contributes right at $400,000 to the production of these Bibles so that they may be distributed. The college is the one that will realize the profit uh, from it. He is not interested in uh, money at all. He wants an effective distribution of the Bible. Uh, it, it is a good Bible, a very good study Bible. I've watched him work on it for years, and when he sent it to me, I wondered how good it would be. And uh, it was better than uh, I thought, and it's been a, a blessing already to a lot of people. I hope you'll look at a copy of it. Now let me read to you a lesson from the third chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Traconatus and Licinius the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He came into all the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we then do? And he answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath food, let him do likewise. Then came he to the publicans to be baptized, and he said unto them, and they said unto him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any man falsely. Be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men began to reason in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered and said unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, 
and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Amen. May God bless you. There are two things that I have just a very few minutes to talk to you about. Both of them could take much time, and uh, I'm going to try my best to capsule two things. In getting ready for Christmas, I think it's important every year to think about preparing for the Lord and what it means that Jesus Christ came into this world and what effect his coming is had upon my life and upon what I do. There are people who are terribly afraid to take their faith in Jesus Christ seriously. I find people all the time in counseling situations who are afraid to become close to other people. They do not wish to become involved. They don't want to become vulnerable. They don't want to be hurt. They don't want to be misunderstood. And so they uh, keep other people at a distance. And there are people who try to do the same thing with the Lord and call it Christianity. But that is not the Christian faith, and this is what John the Baptist is going to be showing, and why he came preparing the way for the Lord in the way in which he did. Some of you saw the motion picture Star Trek, or want to see it. There were great long lines uh, of people trying to see it in Asheville, and I don't like long lines. Um, uh, in that film, when I used to watch the thing on television, I remember Captain Spock and all those different folks, and uh, you learn that computers take on a sort of peopleish. Uh, attitude. And in the new uh, Star Trek film, there is a computer in that film that begins to ask questions. Now, when we ask questions, we better be prepared for some answers. I had a young girl who came years ago when I first came to be a chaplain here, and she said, I guess my trouble with the Christian faith is that I want to ask too many questions. And I said, no, honey, your problem is not that you want to ask too many questions. Your problem is that you don't want any answers. It might mean that you've got to change your way of living. It might mean that you've got to give yourself over to Jesus Christ. Well, when this computer begins to get answers that are costly, it does an interesting thing, a very human thing. It breaks a wire so that it won't receive any more signals. And this is the way it is often in life. When we begin to hear signals that come from God, very often it gets so painful that we deliberately 
draw a line and break the wire so that we don't receive any more signals. If we're a Christian and we're really afraid to study the Bible, why don't we study it? The devil doesn't want us to study it. He doesn't want us to study it at all. He wants us to keep it away. He doesn't want it to become the rule by which we treat other people and react to other people and the rule by which we give and the other things that are there. The devil uh, wants to keep us away from God's word. That's one of the reasons we don't take the time to study it. I have the persons who are otherwise very smart and who have advanced degrees who say to me, well, I don't read the Bible because I can't understand it. And I say to them, you can't understand anything you don't read. If you will read it, you will understand it. Just like you learn to understand mathematics or geometry or chemistry or history or any other thing. But you have to set to work about reading it. Well, this remarkable figure, as impressive character, John the Baptist, comes upon the scene. He is a cousin of our Lord. Our John had been born in a remarkable way, too. Now, Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God, supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. John was born in a unique way in that he was born to elderly parents. Zachariah, his father, and Elizabeth, his mother, were well stricken in age. And yet they had a tender love for God that caused them to be listening. Listening and wanting God to speak to them even though it had been 400 years since the voice of any prophet had spoken. And so God speaks to them. And I think every year when we come to this joy gift time of elderly people whose love for God is so great and sweet and good that they inspire us. Last Wednesday evening at prayer meeting here, Mr. Hoyt, uh, one of the young people, had sung the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And Mr. Hoyt used this phrase in his prayer. Uh, in the prayer meeting. And when I looked out at his face, I thought, I wish I was an amazing, I wish I was a wretch like him. <laughs> when I, I saw the love for Jesus that's there, well, this old man, Zacharias, had a love for Jesus, for a love for God that looked forward to the coming of Messiah. And so when Messiah is born, and Luke is careful to give us a lot of historical data that I read to you a moment ago, because he wants us to know that what we're studying is not a fairy tale or a fable, but it's actual fact and history. Then John comes on the scene, and John's life verse is, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. I did not see the stage production of it, of course, but I did see the film production of, a, of, a, of God's spell by Stephen Swartz. And I remember very clearly the figure of John the Baptist, who in a, a crowd, he comes out of the audience and he blasts on a ram's horn and that shakes everyone up real quick. 
And then he shouts out, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Well, this is what John the Baptist does. He is preparing the way of the Lord. And at Christmas time, we need something to shock through all the sentimentality and make us see what our relationship to the Lord is really like. John received an amazing hearing. The multitudes came to hear him. Uh, huge crowds of people. He was a fearsome figure that came stalking out of the desert with a tremendous voice and with a message that was uh, amazing. Prepare the way of the Lord. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, had said that a prophet like Elijah would come, preparing the way for Messiah when he came. And John speaks, prepare the way of the Lord. And this is going to be that ravines will be filled in, that mountains will be made low, that crooked paths will be made straight. When the Lord comes into your life, some changes have to be made. That was one of the remarkable things that I saw in Mr. Turner's life, was the change that Jesus Christ brought into his life. I have seen that man become purple with rage because he was a person of great authority and power. And then I saw Christ come into his life and one of the last times that I visited with him a few years ago down in Florida, we were coming back to his house uh, after a, a golf game and a, a huge dump truck loaded heavily ran through a stop sign and ran him off the curb up onto the, uh, up onto the grass. He grabbed the steering wheel and I saw him shake. And I dreaded what would come next. But do you know, he dropped his head and he said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And then his face softened and he went on to the place where we were going to change clothes and to eat. Now that's the kind of change Jesus makes. Ravines are filled in. Mountains are made low. Crooked things are made straight. And he begins to show this. He had to say some, John the Baptist had to say some terribly tough things about uh, these people getting ready for the Messiah. He called them a brood of vipers. That wouldn't win you many pulpit committee votes if you looked out at the congregation and shouted out to them, you're a bunch of rattlesnakes. But that's precisely what John does here. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, says John. Bear fruits that befit repentance. Don't just be talking words, 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 words. God is not going to save you for your hot air. God will save you when you bear fruits of repentance. And do you know what they said? I think there must have been a little Presbyterian streak in them. They said, we have Abraham as our father. Well, so what? We have Abraham as our father. And you know what John says? I'm not impressed. It doesn't impress me that you've got Abraham for your father. 
And then John says the axe has already been laid to the root of the tree. And your pride and your ancestry won't hack it. Your daddy can be a Presbyterian missionary and your grandfather can be a Presbyterian seminary president. So what? What about you? And what about your relationship to the Lord? And where are you in your relationship to him? That's John's speech to the people. And then if you read on when the multitudes, that, that sort of preaching does get some results. People either get mad and leave, or they ask the question, what shall we do? And he gives them something to do. It's an interesting thing. He says, he who has two coats, let him share with the one who has none. Now, you wouldn't think that an old hellfire and brimstone preacher would have such a grasp of the social gospel as this, would you? But that's exactly what he says. You got two coats and you claim to be converted? Okay, give one of them to the fellow who doesn't have any coat. And then the tax collectors, they weren't like our, the IRS that we have now. They were uh, able to go and negotiate uh, a settlement of the taxes and then to knock down and to, to rake off whatever they could take. And so they were very crooked and they were thoroughly detested by the people. But it's interesting that both Jesus and John get a good hearing from these disreputable people. And they asked John the question, what shall we do? The tax collectors also came to him to be baptized. Now these were Jews who were being asked to be baptized into the Jewish faith, to go into the humiliating experience of down into the water and being baptized, uh, showing that they are truly sorry for their sins and that they are repenting, that that means a changed mind is going to take place in them. And so when they say to him, teacher, what shall we do? He says to them, very practical words, collect no more than is appointed you. Stop your cheating. Collect no more than is appointed you. And the soldiers came to him and they said, what shall we do? And he said, rob no one by violence. Don't use your gun or your sword because you have authority to take advantage of people and make them kick into you. Rob no man by violence. Don't take advantage of your position. And then he adds a little note, be content with your wages. As uh, the people were in expectation and all men questioned in their hearts concerning whether John were perhaps the Christ, he was even more popular than Jesus. Now that's tremendously significant. And do you know what he says when they ask him that question? He said, no, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I am, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals from his feet. And then he tells them that uh, the Holy Spirit will come into their life, and the Holy Spirit will Take out the chaff, and it will be burned in unquenchable fire. And the Holy Spirit will impress upon them that new heart which had been promised. Luke concludes this whole passage with a striking sentence. So with many other exhortation, 
John preached good news to the people. It didn't sound like good news there for a little while, did it? And yet it, it was good news. You know why it's good news? It means that it's not too late. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to change. It's not too late to give your life to the Lord. It's not too late to let his authority work in you a work of grace. This is the message that John the Baptist brings. It's a tremendously important message. Prepare for the Lord. Do works instead of words that show that you have repented. It's not too late to repent. And take the authority that Jesus brings as the supreme authority that he is going to come and bring to you. And then, because our elders met so long with the deacons the other night, I want to say just one word in closing about stewardship. At the end of Luke's gospel, which, from which I've just read, in the last week of Jesus' life, he had been in a very hostile environment. People had been asking him questions that were hard. Here is a man who dies, and his brother, die, his brother takes uh, his widow to be uh, his wife, and it goes through seven. Who's going to be the wife of this person in the resurrection? This they said to trap him. Here are other people who uh, hate him because he has sought to cleanse the temple. And Jesus is weary with this bickering and fighting, the hostility. They have rejected him as the Son of God, even though John the Baptist has long since been put to death. And they did not receive him. The bureaucrats in the church, the Sadducees, the Pharisees had rejected him too. The Herodians had rejected him. And teaching in the temple, he sits down in one of the courts one day and is just watching. I think he must have wanted a little quiet eddy of solitude to have his soul refreshed. And something very beautiful happened. There was a pale widow who came weaving through the crowds of people and who walked to the 13 chests for the tribes of Israel that were there and for various offerings that were given for the support of the temple. People would come and fling in great hands full of heavy golden coins or silver coins or copper coins. And she came with two tiny little mites. They are almost like a flake of oatmeal, a thin little piece of copper. You couldn't even hear that trickle down into the chest in which she dropped it. And Mark tells us that Jesus sat over against the treasure watching not what they gave, but how they gave. And he saw that she had put in all of her living.
The disciples were impressed by the great gifts like Mr. Turner could give. But Jesus was impressed by the tiny little mites that would be worth only one-sixteenth of a penny. And yet they represented sacrifice. They represented a secret gift. And they represented love. She did without food in order to make that gift. When we come to the business of dealing with the church budget, the budget can be met when people's hearts are right with the Lord and they give in this same spirit. When their hearts have been prepared for the coming of Jesus into their life, when they haven't cut the wire so that they won't take the signals for him, and when they will be obedient, even to the point of sacrifice, to give to him and for his glory. That's when the real giving comes. And that's when the love from it begins to reach out and to touch hearts and to go to far places and to show the love of Jesus. Will you please come toward the front of this part of the service and have our congregational meeting in order for people to have an opportunity to leave uh, who are not members of the congregation. We'll sing 76, just a little tiny short hymn, May the Grace of Christ our Savior, standing as we sing. We are going to places and to show the love of Jesus. We we are going and to show the love of Jesus.